0: Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 12, John's account of the triumphal entry. The triumphal entry is uh, one of the few things that's recorded by all the Gospels. Even the account of Jesus' birth and uh, things like the Sermon on the Mount are not found in every Gospel account. But the triumphal entry is. Apparently the Lord considers us worthy of our repeated consideration. So this Palm Sunday, let's consider again this event which marked the beginning of the week of Jesus' passion. And we'll try to understand it from the Apostle John's perspective this morning as we look at his account. Let me read it. <clears throat> John 12, begin with verse 12, down through verse 19. The next day the great crowd that had come for the feast, heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it, as it is written, do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion, see your king is coming seated on a donkey's colt. At first his disciples did not understand all this, only after Jesus was glorified, Did they realize that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him? Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him up from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had given this miraculous sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. This account suggests two important truths that I want us to think about for a few moments. The first is this that Jesus the King deserves your praise. Jesus the King deserves your praise. We live in a polished media age. Every event is displayed before our eyes in living color and stereo sound and high def video with perfectly executed choreography. Everything is staged and practiced and calculated to have the desired effect. We're so accustomed to events being staged productions that we can read about an event like the triumphal entry and not even have a flutter of excitement. But what we have recorded in this text is not media hype, not a demonstration staged for the cameras. Here's a display of love and adulation flowing only from the worthiness of the person being praised, the Lord Jesus Christ. Here were people who understood that King Jesus deserved their praise. Let me review exactly what took place. Um, As I mentioned earlier, all four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, include this event. So let me pull together one composite picture of the various details from the various gospels. It's Sunday. It's the beginning of the week that will end with Jesus uh, crucified and rising from the dead. All of Jerusalem is in a stir because it's Passover time. Josephus, the Jewish historian of that day, reported that over two and a half million people crowded their way into Jerusalem for Passover. Jews from all over the world. And so Jesus leaves the little town of Bethany to head for the city himself. Now, Bethany, where Jesus had been staying, was located on the the far side of the hill called the Mount of Olives, it was really only about two miles uh, east of Jerusalem. The Mount of Olives itself is just a rounded ridge east of the city of Jerusalem, about 2,600 feet, but it's only slightly higher than the, t- than the hill on-, on which the temple stood. As Jesus begins to walk toward Jerusalem, surrounded by his friends, he sends two of his disciples into the little village of Bethage with detailed instructions of how to borrow a donkey and her colt. They're successful, they return with the animals. When it becomes clear that Jesus wishes to ride on the colt, not the mother, the disciples throw their garments on the animal, which Jesus then bounces and begins to ride. The crowd which is accompanying Jesus immediately follows the lead of the disciples. Some take off their outer garments and spread them on the path, and, and, and others cut branches from the trees and use them to pave the road before the Lord. Meanwhile, down in Jerusalem, the pilgrims who've already arrived for Passover hear that over in Bethany, just a little bit east of there, Jesus had raised a man named Lazarus from the dead, and that Jesus is now on his way to the city. And so they come pouring out of the eastern gate of Jerusalem, heading toward Bethany, cutting palm trees as they go, and hurrying out to meet this Messiah, Actually, verse 17 tells us that the crowd from Bethany was going ahead of Jesus, spreading the word about him to those coming out of the city. Not surprisingly, when the two throngs meet, those coming out of the city and those with Jesus, the enthusiasm swells. And so as they descend down the western slope of the Mount of Olives and draw near to Jerusalem, everyone begins to shout, Hosanna! Hosanna! To the Son of David, and they begin to sing from Psalm 118, which is the last of the great songs of Hallel. Those were the songs sung during Passover season, and they began to sing, "Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel." What an impressive, spontaneous outpouring of adulation! In fact, Matthew Henry says, Matthew says, not Matthew Henry, Matthew says that as Jesus entered Jerusalem, the entire city was shaken. Those who had remained began to ask, who is this? And they heard, this is Jesus the prophet. But the Pharisees, beside themselves with envy, as they listened to all this cheering, appealed to Jesus to stop it. Teacher, they say, rebuke your disciples. To which Jesus responds, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. So verse 9 tells us that finally the Pharisees say to one another, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Have you ever been part of that kind of a group? Some fervent religious demonstration. We don't do that kind of thing, do we? In fact, like the Pharisees, we might find such exuberant praise rather inappropriate, undignified. But you see, this crowd understood what their leaders missed. And what perhaps we miss, that this Jesus is God's king and he is worthy of all praise. So what did they know that we don't know? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. In fact, they knew much less than we know. They had begun to think that Jesus might be the Messiah, but they had no idea of the way that he came to save sinners and give us eternal life. They had seen his miraculous power displayed from time to time, but they never dreamed that he would be crucified and then three days later raised from the dead. They had known the joy of his presence from time to time, but they knew nothing of the Holy Spirit dwelling among them all the time. And yet knowing what they knew, acting what they had seen and heard up to this point, They raised their voices and they waved palm fronds and they laid their cloaks down on the road to pave the path before him and joined together in songs of praise to Jesus, this great king. And this morning I'm here to remind you Jesus is still worthy of our praise. If we fail to praise him like that crowd, it's not because we have no reason to praise It's only that we have become blind and callous to the truth of his greatness. This morning I called you to embrace the attitude of the hymn writer Robert Robinson, who in 1774 wrote these lines, which we sing from time to time. Brightness of the Father's glory, shall thy praise unuttered lie? Fly my tongue, such guilty silence. Sing the Lord who came to die from the highest throne in glory to the cross of deepest woe, all to ransom guilty captives. Flow my praise forever. Flow hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Is that something we ever do? Offer uninhibited praise to the Savior. And what would that look like to live that way? Well, it would mean that when we read God's Word, you don't just drone on through to try to get to the end. No, we adopt its words of praise and adoration and make them our words. We respond to what we read by giving thanks and rendering honor to the Lord. It means that we don't just read fairy tales to our children and sing Sesame Street Street songs with them. No, we teach them and we sing with them, singing children's songs of praise. It means that rather than just listening to your favorite music as you ride down the road, that you buy some CDs of of, of songs of praise and, and you play them until you know all the words and then you sing along with them. It means that rather just getting another movie to watch and kill another couple of hours, buy a video of some Christian artist at a concert so that your heart can be stirred to join in their praise rather than just being entertained. And most obviously, it means you don't neglect meeting together to worship. This is why we gather every Sunday morning and evening. This is why we have special services this week on Thursday and Friday evenings. We're not just filling squares to impress people with our piety. We need to sing and to worship because Jesus the king desires and deserves such adoration and praise. That's the first thing we learn. There's a second truth here. Jesus the great king comes in peace. Jesus, the great king, comes in peace. I have a uh, friend who was an Air Force protocol officer. Now, that's a job you do not want. You see, when high-ranking people visit, there's a certain protocol to be followed, a certain level of honor which must be rendered. And so on a military base, when the general or congressman or the president arrives, someone must make sure that every single detail shows the honor to this distinguished person, the honor that his position demands. Oh, but it's more complicated than that. For the office of the dignified guest is not the only consideration. His intention determined also determines the protocol in other words if a general arrives to take a little vacation and play some golf that's different than if he arrives with a team to to do an inspection and it's like judgment day for that unit the protocol is much different depending on why he came now in the triumphal entry there was no question about the crowd and no question among the crowd, about the honor that Jesus deserved. He was clearly acclaimed to be God's anointed king, God's great Messiah, who would bring the long-expected kingdom promises to fulfillment. And so they acknowledged him as the son of David, the rightful heir to the throne. They laid palm branches before him, as in 2 Kings 9, when their forefathers celebrated the coronation of Jehu, the new king of Israel. But when the apostles look back on the incident years later, which is where John is when he's writing this, what seemed to impress them the most was not just Jesus' high position that the people acknowledged, but Jesus' intentions, which were signaled by the lowly way he presented himself. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, not just receiving the rightful praise of people, but Jesus entered Jerusalem revealing to them the nature of his kingdom, the nature of his work, revealing to them that he had come to do something totally different than what they expected. Dr. Tasker writes, it was a strange coming But in its very strangeness, it was the fulfillment of ancient prophecy. Jesus deliberately arranged that he should ride into the city, not like an earthly warrior king mounted on horse and chariot, but as the prophet had foretold, meek and sitting on a donkey. Leon Morris says the same thing. Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey to symbolize the conception of Messiahship, a conception of messiahship very different from that of the crowds. He came as the prince of peace, for the donkey is not normally associated with war and a warlike person, it's an animal of a man of peace. What a contrast to the way the Roman general would enter, enter Jerusalem. I listen to the description that I found in my Bible dictionary. He says, in a Roman triumph, the victorious general entered the city in a chariot drawn by four horses. He was crowned with laurel, having a scepter in one hand and a branch of laurel in the other. He was preceded by the senate and magistrates, musicians, the spoils of his victory, and the captives in fetters, and followed by his army on on foot in marching order. Oh, but unlike the general who comes not to lower the boom with an inspection, but to make friends and effect peaceful relations. So Jesus does not come to bring judgment. The great King comes to bring peace. The Apostle John specifically makes this point by quoting from Zechariah 9. See your King comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He will proclaim peace to the nations, and his rule will extend from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. This great passage from the Old Testament explicitly spoke of the Messiah King coming in peace. And notice John even prefaced the quote, with Jesus' words, don't be afraid. The apostles telling the significance of these events. Jesus, the, the great king, the Messiah, has not come to judge, he has come to bring peace. All of this was not understood immediately. It came to be understood by the apostles only after they had witnessed Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection and ascension into heaven. John admits that explicitly in verse 16. He says, At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. Oh, but after Jesus' resurrection... His intentions were clearly understood. And think of the glorious wisdom and grace displayed in Jesus' peaceful coming to Jerusalem. You see, if Jesus had come as a Messiah, bringing instant justice, no one could have withstood the fury of his wrath. For who can stand before God in judgment and survive? But in his mercy, Jesus came first to bear the judgment, to take our sin upon himself on the cross, to pay the penalty that God's justice demands in order that he might give us salvation. He came in peace. Dr. James Boyce makes this point powerfully when he calculates that Jesus entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, at the very same time, the thousands of lambs for Passover were being herded into the city. And along with them, here comes Jesus, the final, perfect Passover lamb, who would take away our sin and deliver us from judgment. And so the New Testament repeatedly makes the point that because Jesus came to die, we have peace with God through faith in him. No longer alienated from God, in Christ we are made sons and daughters. As the Spirit says in 2 Corinthians 5, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And, folks, that's the good news for us this morning. It's the same thing which impressed the apostles so long ago as they thought back on what happened. Jesus came as the reconciler, the king who came to show grace and make peace. Sometimes we stumble on this truth, actually. We look around the world. And we see the mess, the evil. And we long for a judgment, who will, a Messiah who will come and bring judgment and clean up this mess in the world. And Jesus will certainly do that one day. But that's judgment day. But today is a day of grace. Today he has come in peace. Today he has come to show mercy, giving himself as an atonement for our sin in order to give us peace with God. Today, Jesus is not destroying his enemies. If he were, none of us would survive. Today, he is pleased to make his enemies his children, to forgive our sins and give us eternal life. And if you're ignoring his grace... Thinking that you're getting away with it because the heavens haven't fallen on you yet. Do you not know that the goodness of God is designed to bring you to repentance? You're not outwitting God, you're rejecting the very mercy that would bring you peace. For you see, Jesus, the great King, came in peace to show grace. All the world is accustomed to leaders using the trappings of wealth and power to make themselves look great. Keeping aloof from people, perhaps even despising the poor commoners over whom they rule. But this morning I point you to a different kind of king, the king of kings. In the triumphal entry, Jesus made his grand entrance into the holy city the city of God's promised Messiah, his city. But he was not aloof and detached and insulated by the trappings of celebrity. He did not ride through the crowds in a limousine waving to dumb but adoring fans. No, he sat awkwardly on the foal of a donkey, legs dragging to the ground, bumped and touched by the crowd, surrounded by throngs of people whom he loved enough to die for. As we honor him today, his praise comes not primarily from the glory he had with his father since before time. His greatest acclaim comes because of the grace by which this great king has come in peace to save those on whom he lavishes his love. So this morning I call you again to Jesus. He's worthy of your praise. For he came in grace and peace to save you. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, these crowds of people, even your disciples understood so little what was going on that day. And yet they recorded it. And now we understand so much if we would only give attention to it and let the truth of it sink in of your greatness, Lord Jesus, and the praise and faithfulness that you deserve. And of your grace, Lord Jesus, It came not to judge, but to save. Oh Lord, you're our only hope. Remind us of that. Fill us with gratitude for that. Fill our mouths and minds with praise. In your name we pray. Amen.